Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Arctos Interregnum audience, listeners, viewers, everywhere that you are, welcome to our August 2022 edition of Interregnum. Today we will be doing a, uh, a special, uh, a pilot podcast, uh, a new series called State of the Right. Um, in this series, we'll be looking at um, uh, people that are met, that matter in uh, the so-called alternative right or dissident right or new right, whatever you want to call it. People who might not belong to it, but people who might be important for it. Pe opinion shapers, people that matter for us. Um, this podcast series uh, will be probably continued, but the first guest uh, that we chose for this podcast is uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones. Is a professor that will be his correct title, but we will, he is more uh, generally known as uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, so we'll be keeping to that. Um, also, it is an honor uh, to have you on our podcast because uh, you are most one of the most well, well known uh, spokesmen uh, for the dissident right, um, as our enemies call us. Even although you might not associate yourself directly with it, that's just how we are viewed. And um, of course, um, whatever uh, contribution you have made is very, very uh, considerable. So before um, giving the word to you, I will be trying to introduce you a little bit to our audience. Not all people will be familiar with your work. Um, you have been, uh, of course, conducting culture wars through your culture wars platform for uh, years and years, uh, podcasting, um, writing articles and writing books. Uh, of these books, a uh, very important book recently out by, written by you is Dangers of Beauty, a book uh, which gives, in my view, a highly traditionalist take on um, Western art history. Then um, uh, a book which I consider most important in your oeuvre, it is uh, Libido Dominandi, uh, about the moral degeneracy and its causes in the current modern West. I would say that uh, next to uh, Roger Devlin's uh, Sexual Utopia and Power, it's the most important analysis of sexual perversion, moral degeneracy, and general deconstruction, um, which are now the calling cards of the West, of course. Uh, but of course, most famous or infamous, uh, you, Dr. Jones, will be for um, your highly repressed Jewish revolutionary spirit, a very large and important uh, take on uh, Western history um, from especially a traditionalist Catholic point of view, um, which is also a touchstone on a topic that we'll be uh, talking about here as well, the so-called JQ, the Jewish question. Um, I wrote myself an article about this uh, Jewish question called JQ to IQ um, in Arctos Journal. Uh, listeners might want to look that up uh, if they like. Um, in any case, uh, I want to assure audience we will not be censoring any of the JQ topics here. There will be no editing, there will be no cutting. Uh, we'll just uh, have a straight talk about this. Uh, also, we will start out with um, uh, topics that are um, more on the theme of the state of the right, which is the purpose of the podcast. So thank you for being here, Dr. Jones. And um, I would like to ask you, uh, would you agree with uh, um, the following uh, typification that I once made of your uh, position in, within uh, our Western tradition, namely that of being the Ronin of the Catholic Church, of the Catholic tradition, uh, one of the last stand of the Catholic Church. Do you think that we are in Christian end times? Do you think that the Catholic Church is still alive? And what do you think about the state of the tradition to which you belong? Over to you. 
Yes, everyone thinks we're in the end times, uh, but uh, the question is, what is ending? I think we're certainly in the end times of the American empire. The American empire, uh, uh, as Vico says, all empires are human constructions, and like all natural phenomena, they have a, a lifespan. They grow to maturity and they die. And we're watching the, the throes of the American empire right now. Uh, the, whether we're in the end times, as that means uh, uh, theologically, like the book of Revelations, uh, that's a question I can't answer. But uh, certainly the end of uh, an era, uh, the end of the American hegemony over the world, uh, primarily because of the, uh, the, the expiration, the disintegration of American ideas. And uh, that has taken place over the periods of my lifetime. I was born in 1948. So the entire period after World War II was pretty much the rise of the American empire. And now we're in its twilight eras, the twilight era. And as Hegel says, uh, the owl of wisdom flies at twilight. So now we have a consciousness of what this empire was about. We are more uh, conscious of uh, the legacy of the Western tradition, how important it is, and it's up to us to preserve it. Well, that's a, um, a very uh, strong take, but in my view, a very correct take. Thank you. I um, like to uh, switch to the theme uh, that we are supposed to be talking about a little, at least. Uh, this is the state of the right, uh, the dissident right. Of course, the dissident right has uh, prided itself on metapolitics, right? So uh, setting narrative, um, a narrative that breaks the deconstructionist uh, narrative of uh, our ruling elite. And um, I want to start off with a fundamental critique that I have on that uh, dissident right, namely, uh, as a whole, I think it's lacking a transcendental reference point. Perhaps uh, there is such a thing implicitly, but explicitly there isn't, not for the movement as a whole. Um, and I believe this fits very well into your, uh, this critique fits very well into your um, uh, stance in the culture wars. And of course, we should remind our audience that this culture wars theme that you chose comes from the German Kulturkampf. Yeah, so referring to the Bismarckian struggle between uh, the German state and uh, the Catholic Church. And um, we will not be using that word because it's, of course, associated with somebody else's kampf. So we don't want to uh, emphasize it too much. But yes. we're going uh, back to that word for one reason, namely that um, the, the struggle between uh, church and state in a certain way is still with us, right? So there shouldn't be a struggle, ideally speaking from a traditionalist point of view, because um, church and state should work as a symphony, as the Orthodox call it. Um, but... We are now facing a situation which a Western totalitarian liberal regime, uh, state apparatus, is uh, in a, I would say, death and um, life and death struggle with traditional Christianity. In this regard, um, I have a question to you. Like you are using the word um, logos in a very specific way. Um, I will not. I will give you the word on that later on, but. Um, logos, of course, uh, is the Greek uh, word for word, um, which has a very um, specific meaning uh, in the Bible and in the uh, Catholic tradition. 
Um, and I think um, I would like to investigate a link between another Greek term that uh, occurs in the New Testament. In uh, more specifically, you will know that, of course, uh, the second book, Thessalonians, second chapter, the word katechon. So translated very often as that what holds back or the one who holds back. Um, the very famous German political philosopher Carl Schmitt associated with the historical force of traditional institutional power and more um, an Italian thinker, uh, Vimeo, Paolo Vimeo, associated it with the force of, of language. And I think here there is some interesting association because, of course, the word logos uh, also refers to the word, to language in a specific way. Um, it has a little bit of an equivalent term, kalam, which you can translate as creative utterance, Hindu term, shabda, which is something like an authoritative testimony. And um, I would like to ask you, do you think there is a useful relation to be made, a uh, metapolitical relation between the terms uh, logos and katechon? I give it to you. Okay. First of all, I was thinking, you're right. Uh, the cu culture wars is based on uh, the German term Kulturkampf. I had it in the back of my mind when I did the biography of John Cardinal Kroll, which got me launched in this direction. Uh, I was thinking of calling the magazine Mein Kulturkampf, but it had those associations that you talked about. So I decided not to do that. Okay. Now, the problem with the dissident right or the right or whatever you want to call it is that it is it lacks a transcendental foundation. That is what conservatism is. It's a way of avoiding transcendental realities, uh, primarily religion. And uh, at a certain point, I was associated with the new right. I was uh, with the, over here, we call it the paleoconservative movement, which was the opposite of neoconservatism. Uh, I was associated with Tom Fleming, in, uh, uh, who was the editor of Chronicles magazine. Uh, I brought him over to Germany. I did a little uh, conference in Germany where I taught school, a race right near where you lived on the Dutch border. Uh, and uh, he, he had contacts with the Flams Block or whatever it was called, uh, Flams Belong. I think they changed their name. Now, what was the problem with all of these dissident right movements? They lacked a transcendental foundation. They deliberately avoided it because of the legacy of the Enlightenment, the legacy of the 30 Years War, the legacy of this Catholic-Protestant conflict. Uh, but it had serious consequences because it allowed the Jews to come in and subvert the movement. The Jews subverted every single conservative movement uh, in the West. They invariably sent someone in. As soon as he comes in, he offers money, and then they take it over. The break that I had with Tom Fleming uh, occurred when I said the word Jew. As soon as I said the word Jew, that was the end. I, I'm, I'll be very specific. It was the memorial for Sam Francis, which was uh, he was a conservative writer, uh, worked with Tom, was a friend of Tom, close friend of Tom. They went to graduate school together. And Sam uh, had been expelled from the conservative movement in America by William F. Buckley, who was the leader of the conservative movement. His job was to be a commissar. Remember, I brought this word up in our uh, previous conversation. Commissar is make sure that you follow the party line. If you don't follow the party line, they take you out and shoot you which is what happened to Sam Francis when I gave the talk 
in the uh, at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. It was at the moment that I was finishing the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And I brought up the Jewish question at that point, and the entire room exploded. Taki said, we're all going to be arrested. Tom Fleming cut off all relations with me. And this is the problem with the dissident right. It's exactly the problem. Now, I, at this point, had this intuition that we have to go back to some type of transcendental values. And you brought up the word that is the essence, the quintessence of transcendental value is the word logos. I could not write the Jewish revolutionary spirit without using the word logos. It's that simple. And I couldn't use any English translation because the English translations simply do not give the force of that word. So the turning point in human history is when St. John wrote the prologue to his gospel, in which he said, en arche en halogos. In the beginning, there was there was Logos. You can't say that in any European, maybe Hungarian. I don't know. Maybe Hungarian is a better language. But in principio erat verbum, um, anfang vardas vort. Uh, and the European languages are all like English. They don't give that transcendental value because no word, modern word, has the resonance that Logos has because Logos is the foundation of the entire Western tradition. And to think you can have a critique of modern society without using the word logos is impossible, especially the most crucial issue of the late 20th, early 21st century, which is the Jewish question. You cannot address the Jewish question unless you see it as a transcendental issue that has to be addressed with using the word logos. So it is not a racial issue. The first thing I had to do with the Jewish revolutionary spirit is eliminate the biological determinism, which is implicit in the word anti-Semitism. And I said, basically, the Jews are in rebellion against Logos. They have been in rebellion against Logos ever since they called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, who is the Logos incarnate. When you're in rebellion against Logos, you're in rebellion against the order ordained for the universe and the social order by God. That means you're a revolutionary. That's what Jews have been for 2,000 years. This is the type of fundamental critique uh, that is missing from the dissident right, and it's the fundamental uh, and, and it led to the fundamental flaw of the dissident right, which means they could not address the Jewish question. Well, uh, there is a reason you have been uh, asked to do the, the the first episode of this State of the Rights um, series, which is this exactly what you are referring to, that the transcendental reference point is the most essential, and that the Jewish question needs to be tackled uh, before all or else. Uh, without that, there is uh, there's just no, uh, no way to set a, a straight policy line or even a metapolitical strategy. And um, we should elaborate a little bit for listeners who are not familiar with your work uh, on the word logos. I mean, I've read some of it, but in my view, um, you can correct me, of course, uh, logos is a dynamic concept. So it's, it's, it's a living concept, right? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. It's an incarnation also in, in the shape and form of uh, Christ. And um, 
it is something that is coming into being over time rather than just a static reference point in some past. You're, abso you're absolutely evil, right. Eden or, yes, and it's, it's, it's also not, not the, 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 the future uh, end state, which is the, the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's, a, it's a dynamic. So I want to say this to our audience, but uh, we should bring it down from the abstract to the concrete. So um, your book is called Locals Rising. How do you see it rising? I mean, even as mainstream Western theology, philosophy, politics, uh, movements are collapsing further and further away from what I would call truth-seeking, uh, capital letter truth-seeking, uh, even as a concept. How do you see it rising? Okay, so the second sentence of uh, St. John's Gospel is that... Uh, uh, kai uh, theos and logos. Uh, lo no, kai logos and theos. Logos is God. Now, this is this is something that Heraclitus did not know. He didn't know that. Heraclitus is the one of the, the probably the first person who started to use the word logos in this dynamic sense. He used it in the sense of uh, like a flame, uh, a flame and river. Or fire. Uh, he was living in uh, Persian-occupied territory. He was basically a Greek citizen living in Persia, and so he was probably familiar with Zoroastrianism. And so he had that sense that, uh, like the flame, it's always the same and it's always changing. And that that paradox is is part of the genius of of Heraclitus. Uh, but you're right; it did change when Saint John adopted that term. He he didn't he didn't nullify what Heraclitus said. He expanded it, so it was a kind of as Hegel would say, it was kind of Aufhebung to exalt and maintain, and that is the history of Logos, which I tried to explain in that book. Now, if Logos is God, it it cannot lose, it, it cannot be defeated. Uh, uh, the problem is that it always seems that it is being defeated. That is the problem of human history. So you have to understand how does how do we how do we interpret this paradox? And the best way that I have found, the shortest way and easiest way, is to talk about the story of Joseph in the in the uh, Old Testament in the Bible in Genesis. So Joseph is captured. Uh, he's basically sold into slavery by his brothers. He goes to Egypt. He rises in the hierarchy in Egypt, and suddenly he's out in charge of the granary. The brothers, there's famine in Israel. They have to come to him and talk to him. And he says to him, and he finally reveals himself, the evil that you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. And at that point, we can understand the movement of Logos in human history. Uh, Hegel understood this. It, 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 the evil uh, that, is, that is part of the human condition because we have free will is always provisional because God is always in charge of human history and God is omnipotent and that means he has the power to take evil and turn it into good. And so that's why Logos is rising even in our day, even in our day when everything seems dark, especially if you're talking about the situation in the Catholic Church right now. Yes, it seems dark. And I've spent recent times, I just, the latest issue of Culture Wars has my review of uh, Peter Zewald's biography of uh, Pope Benedict XVI. And it's an important uh, issue because in our day, the, the fundamental evil 
uh, is known as the Holocaust. You can't talk about evil unless you talk about the Jewish question. You have to talk about the Holocaust. That is simply part of the rules of discourse right now. But what we need to do is talk about the effect that the Holocaust narrative has had on not only culture in general, but the Catholic Church in particular. And this is part of the evil that has been inflicted on us Catholics. And it's part of the evil, part of why I'm saying that if you're going to talk about the history of Logos, you have to talk about the opponents of Logos. And the traditional opponents of Logos are what I said in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. It's the Jews. This is the fundamental axis of human history. If you're not talking about this, you're not in the game. And what I'm saying about conservatism or the dissident right or whatever, they deliberately removed themselves from the game. They deliberately castrated themselves by denying these transcendental realities. And so as a result, they are having no effect whatsoever. Um, the struggle uh, against evil is, of course, uh, something that uh, dissident rightists uh, pride themselves on. It's just a question uh, of the strategy and what, what do you identify as evil, of course. Now, um, the, the state of the right is a, is, a, is a problem. So I'm basically seeing the, the, the right, the dissident right, as an agglomerate of discarded odds and ends. Uh, the alternative right wasn't a misnomer in that sense, only that it was politicized in the right, right. way. Um, what we can see is uh, materialists like monosphere people fighting against feminism and uh, all the processes that you describe in Libido Dominandi. We can see libertarians fighting for traditional Western freedoms. We can see traditionalists fighting against atheism and modernity. Uh, I, thought, I, I do that a bit. And we also can see uh, revisionists um, fighting against censorship of European history and right. of the mainstream right. narrative. And of course, what you're saying is right. Uh, the mainstream narrative, uh, it circles around a cult, right? The cult of the Holocaust, which is uh, essential. I've also talked about it in my article. Um, the problem, of course, is how to unify this, uh, these, these different peoples in one movement effectively and uh, how to coordinate this fight against censorship, because in fact what we are doing is making a stand for the truth, right? The truth is being a precondition for logos to be visible and available to people. Um, so maybe you can say some sentence. I mean, in the course of the years, I'm sure you have seen uh, lots of people that are so-called dissident rightists. You have followed a little bit the development of that movement. Right. What do you think uh, is its uh, evolutionary track uh, how do you, uh, what is your prognosis? How, how do you look at it? Do you think that the transcendental reference is now within reach for this movement as a whole, for the people that associate with it? Of course it is. Of course it is. It's never been there. They have been avoiding it for various reasons. Now, why are they avoiding it? Well, one of, one of the uh, phenomena here uh, that needs to be discussed is what happened to Sam Francis. He was a conservative. That was a constructed identity. And when he was expelled from a conservative, conservative movement, he had no identity anymore. So where did he turn? Where do you turn when you have no identity? Well, you turn back to your roots. And so he was from the South. He had no religion. And so he became white. Well, this has been a catastrophe for the, for the, the conservative movement. It happened not, not just in there. We have, uh, you have a guy like Tom Sunich uh, in Croatia who, who thinks he's white. When did the Croatians become white? This is ridiculous. White only has meaning in terms of the British Empire. 
It only has meaning out of Virginia. It came into meaning with Virginia. The first use of the word white to describe people was a play about the Virginia colony that was uh, in the beginning of the 17th century. It has no meaning whatsoever to Europe. Now, there are lots of people who think it does. Well, do you know why they think it does? Because they cannot accept religion. They could not accept the bounds, let's say the bind, the bind, the bounds, the boundaries that religion imposes on your behavior. Normally, sexual boundaries. These are the most uh, uh, difficult. So because you can't keep your zipper up, because you can't keep your pants up, you decide to become a white boy. A white boy is a Protestant who doesn't go to church anymore. This is a, a vis- uh, identity theft. We have to come back to the, 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 I know um, uh, Kaspar von Schrenk-Notzing, another crucial figure in uh, the right in, in Germany. His son has tried to carry on his tradition. Now, he wrote an absolutely essential book called Charakterwäsche, which is about social engineering in Germany. An absolutely essential book. You cannot understand what happened in Germany unless you read Charakterwäsche. Now, what was his project? His project was to create conservatism in Germany. That failed. You cannot do that. Conservatism is an Anglo ideology. It was created by two Anglophiles named William Buckley and uh, Russell Kirk in 1954, okay, as part of the CIA operation to create an alternative to America first. If you go down that road, you will censor yourself and you will never have any effect. You will have never, never have any effect. The, the true source of conservatism is the Catholic Church. And until everybody recognizes that, we're not going to be successful because we need some type of transcendental support. Now, we have to deal with the, the parlous, the terrible situation of the Catholic Church right now. So I'm not going to give you the worst examples like Germany and their Zenodal Weg in Germany, which is a complete capitulation to sexual deviance. I'll give you an example, a conservative example, Archbishop Chaput, the Archbishop of Philadelphia. He's writing now, he's a thinker. He's writing for first things, writes an article on first things about how did we get into this mess that we're in? And then he says, well, it's because the Supreme Court banned prayer in public schools. Okay. Well, did that did that happen? Well, of course, it happened. Yes, it did happen. Well, who did it? Well, Shapu says, secularizing activists. Well, who are they? Who are secular? You can you point out uh, any secularizing activists? No, it's a completely artificial construct that was created to avoid one simple fact. It was the Jews who destroyed, who banned public uh, prayer in public school. It happened in Philadelphia, it happened in the suburb of Philadelphia. The Supreme Court decision is Shemp versus school board versus uh, versus the school board of Abington. He was archbishop of Philadelphia. He should have known this. He probably did know it. The lawyer was Leo Pfeffer, who was a Jewish lawyer who hated Catholicism and saw this as a war of destroy way of destroying his enemies. And he was sponsored by the American Jewish Committee. So it was a Jewish operation from beginning to end. And Archbishop Chapu, who uh, uh, aspires to be a culture warrior, can't say these obvious facts. He said it in First Things. That's the magazine that was created with Jewish money. 
Richard John Newhouse stole $250,000 from Tom Fleming and the Rockford Institute. And he started that magazine to be a front for Jewish interests under the name of conservatism. If we can't talk about this, we, can, we will never get to the bottom of why the dissident right has failed so miserably. I believe that uh, one of the jobs that um, uh, dissident right has, or at least had, or pretended to have, is that as a replacement to um, the institution we used to call academia, yeah, the academy in, uh, in the West. Um, this, of course, this institution, university life uh, in, uh, as a whole, um, has fallen into uh, repair in a, in, a, in a situation into a situation that I think is irredeemable, as far as the uh, let's say the humanities and the social sciences are concerned. You and me both have an academic background, so you will be familiar with um, academic developments. Um, I believe that um, since theology and philosophy were removed uh, from the heart of the university curricula. Um, the humanities have just shot out uh, into all directions and have lost their coherence and the social sciences as well. Of course, they have lately degenerated in Western countries into a woke brainwash, uh, which is actually counterproductive. Uh, students probably are better off not uh, attending these uh, uh, institutions. And they have been overrun by um, diversity creatures, uh, politically correct appointees everywhere, with access to grind, uh, tenures based on uh, the possession of a vagina or high skin pigmentation or non-binary sexual practices or whatever else um, is in the book of uh, the powers that be. Um, I was removed from university uh, in, due to a libel uh, about me attending a conference in Tehran uh, a long time ago, it was at the end of 2006 or 2007, um, about uh, Holocaust revisionism, right? So uh, I, I didn't attend that conference. I, I didn't have the money or uh, the energy to, to go there anyway, but uh, such a libel was spread, so I didn't go there. Um, looking back on it, it would have been a very interesting conference. Did you attend that conference at all? Because um, some people said that to me, but I'm not sure if that's true. Oh, I, I first time I went to Iran was in 2013, and that was the Hollywoodism conference. Now, the first Hollywoodism conference was in 2012, and uh, Robert Folisson attended that, and he gave a speech about the, the Holocaust. But no, I, I wasn't there that early. Hello? Did it freeze up? Yes, I can hear you. Yes, I can hear you. Okay, okay, I got back. So I said I, I went, continue. I was at the conference, the Hollywoodism, the second Hollywoodism conference in 2013. And uh, that, yes. the 2012 was the first, and Forison gave it, uh, Robert Forison gave a, a talk there. But I missed it. But it, it uh, it allowed me, I mean, if you want the honest story here, the main reason I wrote Logos Rising is because I went to Iran and I spent a lot of time in Iran. And I started to wonder, is there a way that we can have a universal conversation right now? Uh, let's say, can we talk to the uh, is Islamic world? But more importantly, can we talk to the Iranians who have a, a much deeper and older culture 
than the Islamic world. The, the, uh, and uh, can we talk to them intelligently about big issues? That's why I wrote Logos Rising. It's also the sequel to the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So that was my first attempt. I'm still involved in this attempt. I had an interview with President Ahmadinejad about two weeks ago. Uh, it was a little bit, you know, stilted, but uh, I think he's heading in the same direction. We have a situation now where the uh, th the Iranian revolution has been in existence for uh, almost over 40 years now. Uh, it's running out of steam. There are problems that they simply cannot solve. They cannot solve uh, largely because of Islam and the, basically the sola scriptura approach that Islam takes to everything. I think people like uh, President Ahmadinejad understand that. The question is, how do you how do you how do you bring about this change without destroying everything that is good about that culture? That that's a, that's a serious issue, a serious issue because the whole history of Iran is basically a constant pendulum swing from Westernization to Islamic reaction, to Westernization. So the last two periods are the Shah, who becomes a puppet of the CIA, followed by the Ayatollah Khomeini, who is this radical Islamic reaction. They understand that because they have a tradition of Logos that goes all way back before the European uh, uh, understand, not before, let's say, Aristotle. They had Aristotle before we did. But the soil in Islam was so hostile that the Iranians simply could not be philosophers anymore. And after, after a while, they all became poets. Uh, and so Islam, uh, Persian poetry is one of the great cultural achievements of the world. But it is not enough to deal with crucial issues like the relationship between church and state, which is a problem they have to solve. They have to solve very quickly uh, because it's causing big problems. Yeah, I have spent a significant time in uh, Iran, and uh, I think you are right. There are um, possibilities for cooperation between uh, traditionalists uh, from the Middle East and traditionalists uh, from uh, the West, and from people from the dissident right and the people that are uh, standing up to uh, globalism in the Middle East. Um, an interesting figure in this regard is uh, uh, Najat Zadeh, of course, who has been investigating the dissident right uh, from a Shia Muslim perspective and who has leveled exactly the same criticism that you are leveling against it, namely it's the lack of a, a transcendental reference point here. Um, but going back to the, uh, the question that I would uh, like to ask, it's about the prognosis for the Western academia. Um, and this is, of course, important for our younger audience. Uh, what do you? What is your uh, prognosis on this? Where do you think young people can turn to educate themselves in philosophy and humanity still, uh, except for reading uh, some book, good books? Oh, that's the only alternative. Sorry, you have to read. If you want to understand the history of philosophy, please read Logos Rising. That's why I wrote it. No one is writing these histories anymore. If you want a history of aesthetics, Read this book, uh, The Dangers of Beauty. I'm doing. I'm trying to provide the transcendental foundation that the uh, academic uh, uh, institutions are no longer providing. Look, if you, so, you're familiar with Iran. If can you think of any other possible basis for collaboration between the Iranians and uh, people like us in the West, other than Logos? Can you think of any other? possibility? I can't. 
I think that, that's why I wrote well, the book. Of course, um, I, I do believe there are, uh, in fact, uh, parallels for uh, the, the concept of logos in Islamic tradition as well as Hindu tradition, like across the terms kalam and as, across the terms uh, shabda, which are both very uh, dynamic terms, but with a slightly different connotation and association than uh, logos in our culture. But I do believe right. your uh, concept right. is, of it, course, it, all, all, it, it goes back on the ultimate reference point, which is God, right? Right. And we are created by God and we have a certain nature and Logos is the epitome of that nature. So it's obvious that basically any high culture is going to have some type of reference point like this. If you go to the Chinese, it's Tao and the Chinese missionaries, uh, the first Chinese missionaries like uh, Matteo Ricci uh, understood this. Understood, you have to learn the Chinese language, as difficult as it is. All of the Jesuits who spread out during that great period of evangelization understood that the first step to evangelization is learning the language, because that's what you are. Fundamentally, you are a creature that speaks a certain language. And so the Jesuits would go off into the uh, the jungles of Paraguay, and they not only did they learn Guarani, they learned they wrote the grammar of guarani and they wrote the dictionary of guarani and that's why guarani is one of the official languages of paraguay now they did the same thing in quebec where they learned stayed with the the abnaki indians during the moose hunt to learn that language matteo ricci did the same thing in china when he went there and learned chinese and then wrote a classic uh, work of chinese literature these, these were heroic figures but the the outreach that we're talking about here is based on logos, and the first step in logos is language and speaking with someone in in, in the same language. Now we are at a, an advanced state now, largely because of their efforts, an advanced state of global unification, where you and I are speaking English. I mean, that's not surprising. I mean, you know, Holland's halfway between Germany and England, so that's not surprising. But when you add in that you can talk to people in Iran and the conferences are all held in English, this, this is a great opportunity that we have here. And we can't let this, uh, what should I say, this Islamic fundamentalism block the way uh, and create one more eclipse of Logos in in human history, specifically in Iranian history. Yes, um, about uh, people not familiar with this history that uh, Dr. Um, Michael Jones is referring to, namely uh, the Guarani uh, civilizing project uh, by the Jesuits, uh, I advise them to look at a very famous movie, The Mission. It's, uh, I think, from right. the 80s with a very famous Hollywood actor. Uh, this is. Uh, I think it's Robert De Niro, yes, Robert De Niro. Right. Of course, he's a right. poor core actor, but uh, he's a good actor. And I advise people to look at it. Perhaps the story is a little bit twisted, but it, the, the truth it is, shines it through. It is twisted. It's, it's quite the other, the other, the other yes. reference point would be the, the movie Black Robe, which tells the story of the, the Jesuits in North America. Yes. Very powerful yes. movie. Yes. Um, of course, um, we must now turn to... Um, the main theme of uh, of your work, uh, which is uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit, that that what stands uh, in the way of, of logos, we can define it in that way. Um, and as a preliminary remark, I would like to say that no matter where we stand in the dissident right, there is one thing uh, that unites.
answers. That, that is that we insist upon the freedom of speech as a precondition for truth-seeking. So this means that any question, including uh, the Jewish question, JQ is a subject, a legitimate subject of academic research. This is the, the first fundament that we must base ourselves on. Um, that has, of course, a secular component as well. Um, great work has been done on epigenetic studies and uh, social psychology by uh, Dr. Kevin MacDonald. Many of our audience will be familiar with that work, uh, censored as much as Dr. Uh, Jones's work. Um, a, a very easy uh, way to discern where power lies is, of course, where the taboo lies. What can you not talk about, right? So. There are many things we cannot talk about. We cannot talk about uh, the causes of the Second World War. We cannot talk about the Holocaust. We cannot talk about Jewish power. Um, we cannot talk about uh, many things here. Um, a, a very easy way for people to understand is uh, why, why is nobody investigating uh, the historical reasons for what we now term anti-Semitism? So one of the biggest slurs that we can be confronted with in our life, of course, is to be an anti-Semite. And it's interesting that even uh, the very fundamentals of that, uh, that, that term are now being eroded because not even reasons are being given anymore for anybody being anti-Semite. It's just, it's just a slur. Um, I actually like to get rid of the whole word, but uh, what do you think is the value of the term anti-Semitism for our movement, so except for our enemies? Um, but how should how should we be dealing with it? Should we be accepting the term at all in any of our writings? And how should we uh, interpret it? What, what's your take on that? All right. The, the best example from the Catholic point of view is Nostra Aetate, the document uh, 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 on other religions, primarily about the Jews that came out of Vatican II. There's a statement, statement in that. Now, I've done historical research. It's in uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit of the attempt to subvert the Second Vatican Council. The CIA was involved in their attempt to assert it, and the Jews were also involved, and they wanted a statement saying that the Jews were not responsible for the death of Christ, which is preposterous. You can't get 2,000 bishops together to deny the gospel in such a blatant form. But they put a, a sentence in, which said the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. What does that mean? What does that mean? We are now in a situation in the United States of America where the Supreme Court has overturned the abortion decision, Roe versus Wade. And now there is a Jewish counterattack, and the Jews are now saying abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. Now, if there were ever an example of de list de vernunft, uh, the cunning of reason, as Hegel would call it, it is this Jewish claim putting a weapon into the hands of the, the people who are, are fighting them. They never said this before when they were trying to legitimatize it. So for abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. If you oppose abortion, you are preventing the Jews from practicing their religion. If you are anti-abortion, you are anti-Semitic. All of these are headlines I've taken from, from articles that appeared within the last month. And if the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism, the church must support abortion. Now, this is the reductio ad absurdum of this term anti-Semitism. Now, when the church, now what we have to do, the Catholic Church, which is the, the, the cutting edge of Logos in human history, and there's no way to get around it, no matter how bad the situation of the church is. 
the church is going to have to define the term anti-Semitism because it's in their document. They wrote it, put a term in there that they did not define. Now, I'll tell you what they meant. They were talking about the historical understanding of that term in European history, which is the fact that it was, came into existence in Germany through writers like Wilhelm Marr in his book, uh, Der Sieg des uh, Judentums über das Germanentums, and it was a racial term because uh, Wilhelm Marr was a revolutionary, he hated the Catholic Church. He was a, he was took part in the 1948 revolution. He wanted a biological term because that was the vogue. That was the, the, the fashion. That was the craze. It was the era of Darwin. This was supposed to be science. And he created this bogus term, which is basically claiming that Jews are determined by their biology. That's false. If that is anti-Semitism, I reject it. I have never said anything like that. The Catholic Church has never said anything like that. It would be preposterous to say this. The Catholic Church was the bulwark against Jewish influence in European culture for millennia. Millennia. And the Catholic Church never, ever claimed that the Jews were uh, controlled by their DNA. If the Jew converted... That was the end of his rebellion against Logos. We have to go back to this understanding. So if you're confronted, if you are a wherever you are, uh, and you say something and someone says to you, you're an anti-Semite, what do you say? You cannot engage this term. It is, to has a to is totally meaningless. It is meant to stop the conversation. So at that point, you say, and I would say to my Catholic friends or a bishop who says this to me, is it a sin to criticize Jews? Yes or no? Uh, is, uh, so if the answer is yes, well, then Jesus Christ committed a sin because he said to the Jews, your father is Satan. That would certainly qualify as an anti-Semitic statement. All right, if it's not a sin, then why are you bothering me? Why are you burdening my conscience with meaningless distinctions? If it's not a sin, I know polite people never say the word Jew, but we're way beyond polite society at this point. And we have to be able to identify the people who are causing the problem. That's the issue. That's the way we have to deal with that word. Um, there's an interesting uh, thing I'd like to ask you that, that I'm specifically interested in, namely this. Um, as I brought up in my article, uh, JQ to IQ, it is that tradition, so it, it's a school of thought uh, from the, for those who don't know, 20th century, so people like Guénon and Chouon and Evola, um, who have invest, who have also had their say in the Jewish question affair, um, which is a non-biological take, as yours is. Um, and I have been looking at that Jewish question from their point of view, the traditionalist point of view. And of course, briefly, you can say that their position is this, that uh, there exists such a thing as an authentic Jewish religion and an authentic Jewish tradition, albeit completely uh, alien in most respects to the European Christian tradition, but that uh, taken on its own uh, can be self-sufficient and not, is not necessarily hostile to any other or any Christian tradition, uh, except on the dogmatic level. And... Um, uh, as I stated, uh, during the 20th century, uh, of course, 
any trace of that uh, Jewish religion, authentic Jewish religion, authentic Jewish tradition, was virtually erased from Europe, right? Um, what, what is left is just a, is, is, is just a, a very small, um, a small amount of what it was before. And um, I, I think that there exists still such a thing, very marginally, the Jewish tradition. For example, in groups like, uh, you know that, uh, Neture Karta, right? It's uh, not anti-Zionist, uh, we would call Haredi Orthodox uh, Jewish uh, group. Um, and I, I wonder about uh, your take on this group. So, so from a traditionalist point of view, there would be such a thing as an authentic Jewish religion, authentic Jewish tradition, which is not necessarily hostile, doesn't have to be hostile to Christian tradition, uh, if it is allowed to keep to its own, which it wants. And um, there are, of course, some other groups as well. I don't know all their names. And right. um, I wonder what is, your, what, what is your take about this, uh, the difference between that authentic Jewish tradition and what we would call now the Jews as a present as a whole. Right. Right. This is a category, a category problem. And, and people make category mistakes all the time here. So when I say the Jews, when I'm re repeating St. John, who says hoi judeoi, 71 times, what am I talking about? Am I talking about all Jews? No, I'm not. I'm talking about the Jewish people. So the Jew who killed Christ? It was the Jewish people. This is what St. Paul says, the Jews, the people who killed Christ. What does that mean? It's an organized political entity with leaders and followers, which does not include every single person who has Jewish DNA. So when you say the Jews killed Christ, does that mean that the Blessed Mother shouted crucify him as she stood at the foot of the cross? No, obviously not. So the Jewish people does not include every single Jew. The same thing that is true of the Sanhedrin is true today. There is a mobilized group of people known as the Jews. So if we take it back to the abortion issue, 140 Jewish organizations have said that, Jew, that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. Now, we have to take this very seriously because what they are saying then is that basically the people that we call the Jewish people or the Jews now are in reality the worshipers of Moloch. This goes all the way back to the problems that the Hebrews had the minute they left Egypt. They, the majority of these people were always falling into idol worship. There was a remnant that preserved it, but they always fell into idol worship. Those are the people that we're talking about today. These are not children of Moses. We, I am a child of Moses because I'm a Catholic and I'm a, I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said that. These people are Moloch worshipers, and we have to accept that, that their own self-definition. Now, there are other people. There are Jews. I know Jews. And there are Jews who tell me, uh, I said, you know, you, you, you're in an obsolete religion. The, I, the, the Jew will tell me, I am going to follow the Torah. The Torah is the word of God. Okay, I'm telling you, good luck following the Torah, but you cannot fulfill your covenant by following the Torah individually. You have to have a priesthood, you have to have a sacrifice, and you have to have a temple to fulfill that covenant, and you don't have it. It's been destroyed. So you're an individual who is now on mission impossible. You cannot bring about your own salvation 
by reading the Torah according to your own lights. Now that's this. I have this discussion with Charles Moskowitz, who's all he's telling me every time I bring up uh, the fact that Jews are pro-abortion, he says that's not really Jews. This is a category mistake that he's constant people constantly make uh, whenever they're dealing with this issue. And I wrote the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit to to simplify and clarify this category mistake. There are people I met one of the, when I was in Tehran, I was in Mashanel, Mashad. I met uh, Rabbi David Weiss. I said at that conference, I said, he's part of Netherai Karta. I said, if every Jew were like Rabbi Weiss, we wouldn't be here right now. We wouldn't be talking in front of a movie a television screen where Israelis are gunning down Palestinians. But he is not representative of the Jewish people. It's a, a little sect. It would be great if they were all just off on their own, trying their best to follow the Torah. But that's not what the Jew is. That is not what it is. And if we don't take the reality of the situation as it exists with their testimony about abortion, about gay marriage, about the war in the Ukraine, about the war, it, we're, we're not dealing with reality. And we will, we will um, fail. Yes, I, I saw a podcast of yours that you just uh, mentioned this point that you you you, you use the term, the term sacrament right like the jewish sacrament is abortion now right, um, right. it is a very interesting question because um, the jews are bound by covenants right there there's a covenant of adam adam and a covenant of uh, noah which precedes uh, their their later covenant and but it's binding, right? The covenant of Noah is binding on all Christians as well, and it's binding on oh, all Muslims yes, as right. well. Yes, yes, absolutely. And the covenant of, uh, of of Noah explicitly states that murder is forbidden, right? That right. that includes murdering children. So, uh, right. abortion would be forbidden under that covenant. So, I, I'm not sure how how they would defend that from a any orthodox point of view, right? They're crazy. They're, the biology that they are talking about now is absolutely, absolute and crazy. So I'll give you an example there. During this big protest against Roe versus Wade, there's this Jewish lady. And she's not only pregnant, she's going to give birth tomorrow, the day after the interview. She pulls up her shirt and there's her big tummy and she writes on it, not a human. Well, what is it then? And she says, well... Jewish theology says that it's not human until it takes its first breath. This is preposterous. Why are I okay? Given the world we live in, you can have your crazy religion. You know, you can be like a Scientologist or a Mormon or a devil worshiper, but don't try to impose your crazy religion on the rest of us. This is absolutely crazy. It has no basis in biology, no logos whatsoever. And this is obvious now. So, that's good. That's good, because now we can deal with their their crazy situation as it deserves to be treated in these debates, for example, that are going to take place in every uh, state house uh, in the United States when the states are going to be deliberating whether to restrict abortion or not. There is no uh, point. There's there never, is no uh, logos here. There is no logos sure. here. Yes. Yes. Well, there's also no logos in another uh, issue I want to raise. Um, that is just simply, I, I brought it up in my article, the definition of what's a Jew, right? Uh, it's um, a, a big problem because the term Jew is now being applied by people uh, who are not strictly in the halakha sense, the orthodox halakha sense, Jewish, right? 
So in my own country, as in the, the Netherlands, as in many other European countries, there are many people that are half Jews, father Jews, Noahites or others who call themselves Jewish. Uh, some people even say it's a category of the mind, right? You, you can make yourself, you can feel yourself to be Jewish, like you can feel yourself to be a man if, if you're a woman, right? Uh, this kind of right. thinking. And these people call themselves Jewish, associate themselves with uh, Jewish suffering. In my view, they are trying to gain a, a blank check from history, right? They are trying to right. write um, a wave of power, a wave of um, immunity from criticism by calling themselves Jewish. And in, right. this, um, in this regard, I like to bring up a very old word. It's a German word, verjudung. I mean, you know that. It's very difficult to translate. It means something like... Judaizing, becoming Jewish. Jewif I'm not sure Jewif how to translate it exactly, but Jewification. Jewification. Yes. Right. Right. So um, it's a very interesting phenomenon that there are many people, uh, especially in the Protestant parts of uh, Europe, um, who associate themselves with the Jewish people, call themselves Zionists, like so-called President Biden calls himself a Zionist and associate more deeply with the Jewish tradition than with their own uh, tradition, imitating Jews, as it were, um, like forming a new kind of Israel, but without um, making a distinction with the old Israel. What is your take on this problem? Because doesn't that raise a very big danger? There is, it's like a, like, a, like a fifth column um, that doesn't allow us to distinguish between the term Jewish and non-Jewish, or at least tries to create confusion in this regard. Yes, yes. I, well, the classic example is Holland. <laughs> if, you're, if there was ever a classic example of Verjudung, it's Holland. So they, they, first of all, the Calvinists rebel against the Catholic Church. Uh, the, 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 the Spanish army can't make it into Holland. Every time they, they try to cross those rivers, they flood the fields. And so they just hand it over. Okay, the Calvinists, you can have it. And they immediately become a Jewish republic. Basically, they're Jews that eat pork. Uh, and and the, the, the lingua franca, the thing that connects these two things, is capitalism. So you have the rise of capitalism, the, the Wisselbank in, uh, in Amsterdam, and then you have this kind of Jewish culture that ar arises there. Um, why did I? I'm launching into here attacking the Dutch. Wait a minute. Where did I? Where, where, what am I? What question am I supposed to be answering here? What did you say? Well, you're referring to the financial revolution. Of course, I'm very well familiar with that. I'm coming from the Netherlands. So, yes, we used to be the first banking center in the in the modern sense, right. of course, Amsterdam. Right. But the, my question goes back to the to the Verjudum. So, um, in your take, uh, let's just have, uh, as a hypothesis, is it possible, in your view, for a Western population, let's say an ex-Christian population, to become Jewish just by their behavior, just by yes, their, their daily life? Absolutely. That's what happened. Look, Yuri Schleskine wrote a book called The Jewish Century. It's the 20th century is the Jewish century. And we all act like Jews. That's the problem. We're not Jews, but we act like Jews. This uh, Pfefferkorn, it's in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Pfefferkorn, Joseph Pfefferkorn was a convert. And he said in his apologia, it's in Middle Hochdeutsch or middle, yeah, something like that. Anyway, half Yiddish, half Middle Hochdeutsch. But he said, if I still practice usury, I'd still be a Jew. Well, if you're involved in usury, you're a Jew. This is the way they, they considered it then, uh, because you have to behave in a certain way if you want to be considered Christian. 
if you're acting like a Jew all the time, basically they've taken over. And that has been the great success of the Jews in America. They have basically imposed Jewish values. So I think they're right. I think if you're pro-abortion, you're, you're acting like a Jew because that's a fundamental Jewish value. So the question is, how does the Christian culture defend itself? Well, first of all, a Protestant culture like Holland is never go is going to be defenseless. Okay, they cannot defend themselves. England cannot defend itself. Once you break with the Catholic Church, you cannot defend yourself against the Jews and the Jews take over. New England is where those crazy Puritans went. That brought the fatal seed of Jewish thought into America at its very beginning. Uh, uh, Increase Mather wrote a book called Jews in America because Milton is a classic example of what I'm talking about. Milton's wife leaves him. The great, this is the great English poet, the secretary to Cromwell. Uh, his wife leaves him and he finds this other woman attractive. I'd like to divorce my wife and marry that woman. Well, I'm a Puritan, so I have to base it on scripture. Well, scripture, uh, Jesus Christ had something very clear to say about divorce. It's adultery. So what's Milton do? He turns to the Old Testament and justifies his behavior according to the Old Testament. This is the classic example of what happened to all Protestant countries when they broke with the Catholic Church. So what's, in order to solve this problem, we have to go back to the original plan, the, modus, the original modus vivendi, which was sequit judeus non. No, Jew, no Christian has the right to harm the Jew. But the Jew, on the other hand, has no right to destroy your culture and must be held in check to prevent him from destroying your culture. That's a modus vivendi that worked for a thousand years, and I think it can work now. Um, I think I brought it up in my book, Sunset. I think the, the phenomenon of, of Judaism, um, the secular forms of it, uh, the secular expressions of it, it's like a um, it's like a shape shifting phenomenon across the last centuries, um, uh, adopting itself according to circumstances. So what we are seeing uh, is people associating themselves, let's say, being subject to verjudum, as we are talking about people who are not Jewish or so-called part Jewish, uh, associating themselves with that tradition and trying to uh, with, with that with that name and with that blank check from history, trying to. Uh, gain immunity in, in many senses for right. their uh, for what, they, what they are doing, but I think there's also the, the opposite problem, namely uh, from from the side of the um, of, of the problem within Jewry itself, right? So the, the Orthodox rabbis are trying to uh, define it, protect it, and shield themselves and separate themselves, but that's uh, a very big problem because what we are seeing among Jewish uh, American Jews, especially, is of course intermarriage, high divorce rates, reform practices, abandonment of fundamental knowledge, decline of educational standards. Let's say all the kind of phenomena that also uh, European European descent, uh, Christian descent, Americans are suffering from. And um, so the Jewish tradition in this sense is lost and it becoming a, a more loosely defined, uh, a very pragmatic kind of uh, identity that people want to associate themselves uh, with and um, shape-shifting in, in, a, in a certain sense. Uh, like it, there must be a certain trajectory. What do you think is the ultimate form uh, of, of Jewishness? You already seen some, said something about that in form of like, um, uh, abortion being becoming a sacrament, right? 
what's what's the ultimate end end stage of that? Uh, do you think? Polak worship. Polak worship. That's what it was at the beginning. That's what it is at the end. That's what it is. So uh, to get back to your original point, uh, feminism is a way for women to act like Jews. Feminism was a completely Jewish movement. It was calculated to destroy the family, uh, the family structure in uh, countries like the United States among the majority population. But it was basically women acting like Jews because they got Jewish privilege. If you say you're a feminist, then you get Jewish privilege. Same thing now with homosexuals. They have Jewish privilege, and so they can do things that other other people can't do. So that's, so I, I had a friend. So to get back to the rabbis, what they're trying to do. A good uh, movie to watch is A Serious Man by the Cohen Brothers. Everyone should watch that. It's, a, it's the two very successful Jews who wrote a, uh, did a movie about what it was like to grow up uh, in a, with a synagogue in, uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, they, they, the rabbis are caught in a losing battle. Okay, they cannot win this battle. Uh, I've had a friend in graduate school. Graduate school in Philadelphia was basically Catholics and Jews. Uh, and so I met this Jewish woman, and uh, she had this spiritual moment uh, associated with um, wanting to have children. Because this was the high watermark of feminism. Every Jewish lady is a feminist, and she still has this desire to have children. And so she's having trouble having children. So she turns to God. Uh, well, that's a natural thing to do. Well, her brother is an Orthodox rabbi. So what? Do, how do you turn to God if you're a Jew? Well, you turn to the rabbi. Well, what's the rabbi tell you? Well, there are about 633 laws that you got to follow. Well, she says, I can't do that. Oh, she's right. I mean, someone who understood that was St. Paul. <laughs> it's impossible to do this. You're not, and you won't be saved if you do do it. So this is the moment. So God, you're in a situation. God heard her prayer. Uh, she had two children, uh, which is what she wanted. But God is above uh, this obsolete religion, and the obsolete religion is not going to satisfy the desires of a woman like this. Uh, and so the general thing is you turn to a revolutionary uh, uh, ideology, which is, as you say, it's always shape-shifting. So what was feminism at one point then becomes the homosexual movement, and that becomes the transgender movement, and you're always on the cutting edge of history, which is always tending toward what you were at the beginning, which is Moloch worship. That's That's the tragic trajectory of the Jews. And it's our duty as Christians— it's an act of charity to do to the Jewish people what I have tried to do in, in my book is try to bring them back to Logos because they're in desperate need of Logos. They've got an absolutely irrational, crazy religion that is epitomized by this Jewish lady saying it's not a human until it takes the first breath. Absolutely. They're imprisoned by this. The, 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 one of the points that comes out in the Cohen Brothers movie is how the rabbis keep these people prisoners. It's very clear. And so you have groups like IPAC, the uh, uh, American-Israeli Political Action Committee, whenever they have their conference, it is full of fear-mongering. There's all these screams, like back when you were, you and I, or when I was associated a little bit after when Ahmadinejad was president, they put Ahmadinejad, Adolf Hitler, flashing screens and to terrorize the Jewish population to keep them prisoners of this cult 
this Moloch cult. That's so obviously our our goal is to break this spell over Western culture, break it spell over Europe, but also to liberate the Jews from the cult that they're involved in, this death cult, this suicide cult. Well, uh, my background is astrology, so the study of ancient Mesopotamia. And in those um, Babylonian sources, we find the first uh, non-Jewish references to Jews. And um, the cuneiform marks written for their tribe are the sagas, which are translated something like um, bandits, uh, roving bandits. And um, the Jews themselves, uh, I've spoken to rabbis, who were quite humble about their origins. They said, we are the, the lowest of the low, but uh, God had mercy on us and gave us this covenant uh, to stick to. And of course, uh, they were at some point the chosen people, right? Also the people from which uh, Jesus Christ came. Right. And right. I think uh, we are uh, also, uh, as, a, as coming from the European tradition, obliged to be charitable and um, to, to, to welcome people and to, to help them and to uh, let them, uh, in, to, to give them value as, as humans, right? I think this, this is also something that shines out through your work. So in this sense, um, there are certain kinds of anti-Semitism, I would say, uh, that are charitable uh, in a strange hidden way, intended as such and probably also um, under the operation of the Holy Spirit, mysterious in certain ways. Um, I will give you the last word. Maybe you can say something about the project you are working on, uh, about things uh, that you would want to achieve uh, through uh, your dissident right contacts. So I give the last word to you. Yeah, I think the whole gist of our conversation is that you can't have a movement without a transcendental foundation. And that has been precisely the problem with these movements. There are all these guys who are calculating some type of political advantage. Well, you know, God bless you if you want to do that, but you should run for political office if that's what you're doing. Uh, and the polit politics is always the, the science of what is possible given a particular situation. But if you're having a movement, you have to move above that, that uh, uh, immediately practical realm. And you have to dealing with, deal with transcendental attitudes and transcendental values. Crux, the essence of the transcendent West is Logos. And if we want to regain that heritage, we have to go back to Logos, not as you understand it, but as history has developed it. So you can, I have people who say, yeah, I, I believe in Logos. I'm a follower of Heraclitus. Well, no, that's an obsolete understanding of Logos. You have to follow it where it is, and you can't be constantly, just the Jews are always caught up in obsolete revolutionary movements. You can't be caught up in an obsolete counter-revolutionary movement. And conservatism is what that is in America. It's gone. There's one true conservatism in America, and that was America first during the 1930s. That had a Christian component to it. We have to, in, we have to be able to tap into that history through transcendental concepts like Logos. And that's the way we were able to forge alliances with people who are completely different than us, like the Iranians. It has to be based on transcendental concepts like Logos. Well, uh, with that, um, we will end the broadcast. Um, 
I'd like to thank you on behalf of Arctos and our listeners, uh, Dr. Jones, for your presence, for your wise words, and for uh, kicking off this new State of the Right series. With that, I also thank our audience for their attention. I advise them to read the books of uh, Dr. Jones. They are available through his website, um, Culture Wars. Uh, look into them. Uh, try to Culture learn something. Culturewars.com. Culturewars.com. Culture All the books are available there. Don't go to Google. Yes. Don't go to Amazon. Go directly to culturewars.com. Right. With that, I, uh, I, I close the broadcast. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you.